Alright, let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. We've got a lot to cover this morning, and uh, I trust the Lord will use the study of our spiritual gifts here to benefit and build us up as body believers here at South Hope. We live in a society of narcissism, in case you haven't um, recognized that. Every commercial, everything that we see on television or in social media wants to have your finger point back to yourself. And um, <clears throat> the big lie in culture today that many people accept without really thinking deeply about it is this one, that you can be anything you want to be. That's in just about every single little kid's Disney movie, uh, every single little cartoon, and uh, also with adults as well. But the fact of the matter and the truth of the Word of God is you can't be anything you want to be. And the truth is that you can be, however, everything that God wants you to be. And if we understand that truth, that you can be whatever God wants you to be, it puts everything in perspective. God has made you unique. You can't be everything that you would want to be. But you can, through the Spirit and through the power of the Gospel, be exactly who God wants you to be. And Romans chapter 12, that is the truth that we have uh, laid out in the previous verses, verses 3 through 5. You see, this chapter here, and we're calling this series in Romans chapter 12, Body Life, this chapter here um, uh, is, 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 is the unpacking of church body life, functioning within the local church. But at the foundation of body life here is a balance of sound judgment concerning ourselves. And that's what we looked at in verse 3 last week. <clears throat> you see, we need to know God, our God-given capabilities as a tool in His hands, and we need to know our limitations. According to verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. There's three key words used in Romans 12.3 that I uh, shared with you last week. That give us insight in how we're to survey and assess ourselves within God's plan to build up the body by using individuals as harmonious tools. And each of these three key words are the word think or a form of the word think. The Greek word think, phronetin, is used in verse 3 three times to think. And it's translated, first of all, in verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And also, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. To think more highly, as it's translated here, than you ought to think, is is the word not uh, uh, is the word not phronetin, It's the word uperphronetin in the Greek, which means to think over, or to think above, or to think beyond. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think over or above himself, beyond what he ought to. Then he ought to think, but to think soberly. And that's the third word, uh, form of the word think that's used here. That means to have sound judgment, to think soberly, to have sound judgment. It's the word sophronetin, to be sensible, to be reasonable, to keep proper measure, to not go beyond the set boundaries. 
And so this text here, Paul here, is thrusting us into understanding that we have God-given capabilities, and the door is wide open, and at the same time, there are God-given limitations for every single one of us, according to verse 3. So you can see from the meaning of the forms of this word for think, there is to be balanced, sound judgment that is to precede, that that is to concern knowing our God-given capabilities and our limitations. But what is the key to developing this balanced, sound judgment? And that is at the end of verse 3, where he says, According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. The measure of faith. God says that He's given us a measure, a certain measure. Each individual here has been given a certain measure of grace, if you are a believer. A special ability to carry out a vital function in the body. And that measure of grace has been allotted, it has been apportioned out in certain proportions. And our limits are made up by the rest of the body. There are two key words in verse 3 and also one in verse 6. A key word in verse 3 and also in verse 6 that help us understand this balanced, sound judgment that verse 3 pushes us towards. And the first is at the end of verse 3, that word measure. It's the Greek word meridzo, and it means to deal out, to assign, to apportion. Moms, as you've grown up with, uh, and you're raising your kids, and it's lunchtime, and, uh, and they, the, the kids finish their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and you're going to, to give them a, a, a cookie, you carefully measure that each cookie is exactly the same size, right? Well, God has measured out exactly, not exactly the same size, what we all need, but exactly what you personally need. And that's the word measure there. He has dealed out. He has assigned. He has a portion. But also in verse 6, when Paul says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. That word proportion. It's the word analogia, and it means the right relationship, the proportion, the agreement. So he's dealt out the right relationship, the proportion, the part that will agree with the rest of of the whole. So with those two words, measure and proportion, we have uh, uh, shaped out for us what it means to be, in verse 3, thinking soberly, according to the measure of grace that we've been given. So there's a special ability to carry out a vital function in the body that has been given to each believer, but that has been given in certain assigned proportions by a sovereign God. And once we come to sound judgment, we understand this truth. We are free to pursue our special measure of grace with our whole hearts. And that's why Paul, in the list of gifts, in verse, uh, the, uh, in verse 6 through 8 here, will attach with those gifts a qualifier to each, to the, each of those gifts, that list of gifts. In other words, each gift, or each measure of grace, will have a qualifier attached to it. And here's the reason. God does not want us to be, does not want South Hope Community Church to be a one-man show but to have balance in the body life of the church. And these verses here in Romans chapter 12 are the heartbeat of God wanting us to focus on the function we do best in the body of the local church. We're to pursue these functions that have been given to us with all our hearts 
after we have thought of ourselves soberly. After we have assessed ourselves properly, as in verse 3. We're to use these measures of grace, these gifts that are listed in verses uh, 6 through 8, to function as servants of the body, to build it up, and to devote ourselves to doing our individual function well for the betterment of South Hope Community Church. And in doing so, with our sound judgment, we must be sensible about the limits of our own capacities and also the extent of our God-given abilities. We're to learn from each other. And we're to see the balance as others minister to us and what we lack as well. And build up unity and diversity as we are interdependent on one another. And that's the spirit of fellowship then. That Paul will take verses 9 through 16. And with our special functions in the body, verses 6 through 8. He'll take verses 9 through 16 and remind us that within the body also comes at the same time. Besides our own special personal function that builds up the body, also comes general commitments to one another that no one's exempt from. General commitments as well that all of us are called to, where the excuse of that's not my job or that's not my function or gift doesn't count. That's what verses 9 through 16 are about. But what I'd like to do today, before we work through the individual categories of gifts, that we'll we'll begin that next week, is to unpack that phrase in verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Now, we saw last week that by operating through His power, we can serve one another in unity of purpose, diversity of function, and mutuality of interdependence. And we broke this down into into, uh, five or six S's here. Uh, We saw that uh, at, at the source of all this is that we need grace. We need God's grace. We need Him to, uh, uh, we, we need God's uh, loving gift toward us to be the source of it all. Because Paul says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me, and then at the end, according as God hath dealt, He's given, that's His, his giving grace to every man, the measure of faith. The source is we need grace. But the stance as we approach our body life and our functions in the, in the body of Christ is, is humility. We are to grow in humility. That's going to be our attitude, our stance, our posture. And with this attitude is the understanding that there's a singularity. We're all one body. We're all one body. But, of course, there's an assortment. There's a sorting here. We're we're all different. We all have different functions, different strengths, different weaknesses. There's a sorting out. But the truth of the matter is, according to verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, is that there's a mutuality, there's an interdependence that's important. We're all needed. There's a synergism. When all the parts uh, uh, work together, there is is greater work accomplished than if each part was just working independently of the others. There's a synergism. So now we understand uh, what, what Paul says there in the preceding verses. Here's the engine for it all. Now we need to understand what Paul means in the totality of the New Testament when he says, having then gifts differing. Having possession, gifts differing, diversity, according to the grace that is given to us. And so this morning I, I want to do more of a, a teaching time here 
and, and see, first of all, the background for spiritual gifts. You see, uh, the idea in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, is let's use them. Let's use them. And we saw when we began this chapter, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that God is telling us, I'm saved, but I'm not done yet. There is a renewing of my mind and transforming to be... To, to, that is to take place to prove that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. To test it out. Well, if that's true, then we need to understand that God has graced us. He's graced us. He has given us possession, and that possession is different with everyone. So I want to look this morning, first of all, at the background for spiritual gifts. Background for spiritual gifts. Go with me to Numbers chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 29. Numbers eleven twenty-nine. There are echoes in the New Testament of a longing for God to work in such a way through the Spirit, through God's people, that He would accomplish great things. And Moses echoes this longing in his heart. When he says in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 29... Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. There's a longing in Moses' heart to see that God put His Spirit upon God's people. And they grow specifically in this, in, 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 in this role of, of prophet, proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now go with me to Joel chapter 2. We could spend a lot more time in the Old Testament that's not my purpose this morning, but I want you to see that there are roots to this. There's a continuity in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> Here's the promise of the Spirit that God prophesies through Joel. Joel 2, 28 and 29. And it came to pass afterward, and it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. There's a promise that God is going to do something special with His spirit. He's going to pour out His spirit. Fast forward a little bit to me, uh, a little bit with me to the Gospels, and turn with me to Matthew chapter three, because God's promise He's going to do something special with His spirit. And in between the Testaments, you understand that the Gospels are the times still in between the Testaments. That temple has not been ripped yet when Christ says it is finished. It's still under the, the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is dawning. The, the, the sun is coming up. But in the, uh, in the Gospels, they're still living under the law. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, is something very interesting. He says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize or immerse you. There is the idea of pouring out the Spirit. He shall immerse you, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John the Baptist here is kind of fanning the flames of what Joel has said in Joel 2, that God would pour out His Spirit. 
He's, he's, re, uh, he's, he's understanding that the future soon will become reality in Joel's prophecy. What about Jesus? Well, go with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> of course, Jesus begins His ministry, His, his official ministry in Luke chapter 4, uh, after He has been baptized and He returns uh, and, and He is tempted. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins His ministry and He brings in that ministry the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. He's returned victorious from temptation in the first few verses. And then in verse 14 it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Returned in the power of the Spirit. So He begins His ministry and He brings with that ministry the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. That results in teaching and great power, verses 15 through 22. He teaches with great power. He lays out his ministry. And then in verses 31 through 41, it, this ministry of, of the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit results in great works in verses 31 through 41 of Luke 4. He's come in greater power of the Holy Spirit to conquer what Satan has claimed to be his own. And then in Luke chapter 10, Jesus expands this power of the Holy Spirit upon Him to more than His own personal ministry. To a selection of 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10. But the inauguration of the pouring out of the Spirit in new covenant fullness and power in the New Testament church occurs in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, please. Actually, go, go, go to Acts chapter 1 first. The power of the Spirit in new covenant fullness and power in the New Testament church occurs in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, look at verse 4. Luke is rehearsing how he ended the book of Luke in Acts 1. And he says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. So they're, they're, they're to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. Now look on verse 8. What is the promise of the Father? Verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So you will be infused with supernatural power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When He's poured out on you in the language of Joel. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and the Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So, they return to Jerusalem in verse 12. They continue in prayer in verse 14. I believe praying for that coming of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, it says, And when the day of Pentecost, that feast day, was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came... There's a new covenant fullness of the power of the Spirit. Suddenly there came... A sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all what? Filled. With the Holy Spirit began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Poured out. Holy Spirit poured out. The new covenant fullness here. He's been poured out on believers. Look at verse 16, chapter 2. 
But Peter has to say something about this to anybody who will listen. And in verse 16, Peter says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. New covenant has come to pass. It's fulfilled. This is it. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Then he quotes Joel 2, verses 22 and 23 that we already read. And verses 17 through 20. And then in verse 32 and 33, Peter says this, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. He's delivered on His promise. And so this is where the gifts of the Holy Spirit were poured out on the church, the New Testament church, the inauguration of the church, the New Covenant. And this is where spiritual gifts and the New Covenant began. Now, how was all this secured? All this was sent by Jesus Christ through the atonement of the cross. Go with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. So where did your spiritual gift, if you're a believer, come from? You need to understand that this is a big deal. It's in the plan of God. And it is delivered and sent by Christ through His satisfying God's demands on the cross. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. And when I preached through Ephesians, I shared this with you, so some of it will be uh, a... A reminder, but I think we need to see it again. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12. Uh, Paul says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What Paul is saying is this. Christ gives gifts to all believers in verse 7. No believer has been left out. He has measured again. There's that word measure. And this word here, metron, means a quantity that is measured out with a certain definite amount, a capability. Peter will tell, tell us, but as every man hath received the gift. And so I understand the, 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 the New Testament teaching to be that every believer has a gift. A gift. There are many unique and distinct blends and combinations and categories that might be wrapped up in that one gift. That's as Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 teach us. But we have a gift. And it is necessary to serve this local church. To serve the body. Well, why does Christ have the right, the authority to give these gifts? Well, He's God, right? But also because of what He did through the atonement. And that's what, that's what Paul's teaching us in verse 8 and 9. Because Paul is quoting from Psalm 66.18, which has a picture of a king who is a conquering hero of his, over his enemies. And this victorious king, he returns to, to the city on his war steed with the spoils of war. The spoils of victory. People who he has captured. Slaves and prisoners. People who he has freed. 
captives of his, of his own people that the enemy had made uh, his slave and Jesus has, has captured. And Paul's explanation in verse 10 is this. That Jesus returns with those who He has liberated. Verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that He might fill all things. Paul's explanation is that Jesus would fill all things. Christ is the one who has ascended. Now this incident that uh, Paul is quoting from Psalm 66 verse 18 about descending and ascending and bringing captives is what I believe Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. So would you flip over there? You might want to put a bookmark in Ephesians 4. But go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was of preparing, were in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. You see a descent in there, and then you'll see an ascension in that passage. What Peter is saying, I believe, is that, uh, that Peter is describing the work of Christ as Jesus' body lay in the tomb, descending. See, as you study the words in the Old Testament, the Old Testament place of the dead was, was, was known as Hades, or Sheol. There are two parts. There, there were the upper part, where the righteous were called, uh, uh, lived, where that was called paradise. And the lower part, where the unrighteous and the bound demons lived, called Tartarus, under punishment. Jesus gives a, a, a glimpse of this when he describes the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus there. In fact, in Second Peter and Jude, he talks about the, the unrighteous and the bound demons there in that place called Tartarus, is, is the Greek word there, who are held in everlasting chains in Second Peter. But what we need to understand is that at Jesus' death, Jesus went and proclaimed victory, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says. He proclaimed victory over those, over His enemies. Colossians 2.15 says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He went and proclaimed victory. And so what Paul's trying to tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, that it was Jesus Christ on the cross that gave Him the right to victory, to ransom sinners, to free them, and to give gifts to them to fill His church as He first saved you to, number 2, Serve Him. And so then, Paul will say in Ephesians 4, that He's given gifted men to the church, to build up the church, to do the work of the ministry. Who are these gifted men? They are sinners who have been bought back at the cross, to serve His body as His gift to the church. Of course, Christ is the perfect illustration of every spiritual gift. But the Father has given His Son wedding presents wedding presence of His people to serve as gifts. 
So that's where spiritual gifts have originated from. I want you, uh, secondly, to see that these spiritual gifts uh, have a purpose. They have a purpose. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is to equip the church to carry out its ministry of establishing the church and expanding the church until Christ returns. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. What's the purpose of your spiritual gifts? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. Paul says this. So that ye come behind, or you're not lacking in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gifts that God has given you are to carry out Help the church carry out its ministry of establishing the church and expanding the church until Jesus returns. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can go over to 1 Corinthians 13 that we already read this morning. And look in verse 10. He lists the gifts in verse uh, 8 and 9. And then he says in verse 10, But when that which is perfect is come, and I believe that's referring to Lord Jesus Christ's return, then that which is in part shall be done away. Remember Acts 1.8. Jesus promises the pouring out of the Spirit. And He says that is an, until the testifying unto the farthest reach of the world. And these gifts that God has given uh, to build up the church, and that's what 1 Corinthians 14.12 tells us, and Ephesians 4.12, the purpose of them to build up the church, are to build up the church till He returns. Just as the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the perfect work of the Spirit without sin in the age to come that we'll enjoy, so the gifts of the God's people are a foretaste of the perfect work of the Spirit without sin in the age to come, unhindered by flesh and perfect unity. So they're a foretaste of what we'll enjoy in heaven. But the question is, so how many spiritual gifts are there? Well, I have gave you a handout this morning. And there are the New Testament gifts that have been listed in the, new, in the epistles. Um, we're focusing on that third, fourth column, Romans 12, 6 through 8. But there are uh, the list of, of gifts that are mentioned, uh, specifically that gift, word gift, charismatic, there. Uh, we're going to focus there on Romans 12, 6 through 8. But I want you to understand that uh, uh, the, this, this list of gifts here in these six passages... Notice that one that it listed prophecy is mentioned directly or indirectly in every list besides 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know that these are necessarily exhaustive lists Paul's trying to give us. There does seem to be an order in it. You also notice that there's an overlapping gifts. He talks about helps in 1 Corinthians 12, and he talks about uh, uh, serving in Romans 12. Well, there, there could be overlap. You could classify them a few different ways. But the point of the gifts is that God gives His bride an amazing variety of His variations of grace. There is rich diversity here, so that we depend on each other and not on one man or one woman. And this is the glory of God's wisdom, because no one has them all covered. We need to depend on each other. Also mentioned here, and don't worry, I'm wrapping up, they also vary in strength. They vary in strength. If you go with me back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. Romans 12 and verse 6. 
Paul says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. They vary in strength. They could be more or less developed in individuals. Paul tells Timothy to not neglect the gift that's in him in 1 Timothy 4. He tells Paul in 2 Timothy to stir up the gift that's in him. So you could allow it to weaken. And you can stir it up and strengthen it like a muscle you would exercise in service. They can be honed for great effectiveness. But each person has their own potential as measured out by God, by His proportions for that individual. Regardless, the gift that you have that God has sovereignly designated on you is to be used faithfully. And it's to be used for the building up of the church. For the glory of God, no matter what the capacity of your gift is. They are to benefit the body. You might also notice on this chart that many of the gifts are things that are supposed to be true of all believers. For example, all believers are generally are to teach others in some sense of that word teach. There's a general ability similar to every gift that all Christians have due to their union with Christ and the character that will flow out of their union with Christ. But the one who, in our example, has the gift of teaching, specific gift, is one who has a special intensification of that category that benefits the body as it's developed to a higher degree. Well, you have to come back tonight, this evening, and uh, learn, are gifts, is your gift permanent? And then how do I know my gift? That's what I want to talk about this evening, as uh, I have much to cover. Let's close in prayer.